episode 19, Alexander the Great podcast. Hope everyone is okay. I'm a bit stuffy. <laughs> I don't know. I might sound a bit shit during this episode. Hope you can bear with me, but it's been a while since I uploaded, so I definitely, you know, I've got this ready. I had the fucking thing. I had all the all written out, and it had to go. Um, please write me a review on iTunes, and I will send you a gift from Greece. You will find a donation page at the link of this uh, podcast, and you will also find my Instagram page, and you can send me messages through there, and also follow me on Facebook. Hope you like the episode, guys. Let me know what you think. Peace. In the last episode, we talked about the amazing Battle of Heronia and the end of the independent Greek city-states. Classical Greece, as we knew it, has officially ended. Philip's first job is to offer sacrifice to the gods and honor those who have fallen in battle. Even the enemy, as we saw last time, he did with the sacred band. Justin tells us the day before the battle, in order not to appear overly zealous, he ordered everyone not to call him king of Greece, but leader of Greece. It has a different ring to it. He has the dead Macedonians cremated, then he puts the ashes in a mass grave of polyandrio, as it's called in Greek, I tried googling polyandrio to find a term for it in English, and it means uh, something else. It uh, it translates to polyandry, which means a lady who has many husbands. So not that, <laughs> and uh, and in this uh, polyandrio, he would they would put in coins, weapons, some clips probably from Pornhub to pass the time, you know, as uh, many other things that they thought the soldiers needed in the afterlife. So we see there's a difference to how the dead are treated. In one grave, you have 254 skeletons, as I said last time. And in another, you have coins and the other things that we mentioned. So so this is what makes us believe that they are from different city-states. Each city has its own traditions, and it's nice to see Philip respect that. History has shown us, even before Philip's time, if you rush it, and give yourself too much credit and think of yourself as the baddest motherfucker to ever walk on the planet, people will do anything within their power to get rid of you. As we have seen in Athens, Sparta and Thebes in the 4th and 5th century. For Philip, if he wanted to be seen as the baddest motherfucker ever, he would simply install the Macedonian garrisons on all conquered land, as was recommended to him. His future actions show us that he has learned from the mistakes of his predecessors and takes things nice and slowly, especially with Athens. Last time we saw that he sent the Athenian prisoners home. He didn't didn't even ask for ransom or anything like that. Just take them, you know, be my friend, please, kind of deal. With Thebes, it's a different story. Excluding the sacred band, which he probably respected, which he probably respected, as I said, all other dead bodies were to be returned only after a certain payment was made. And anyone still alive after the battle was sold into slavery. Philip allowed the League of Viotia to exist without Thebes having its hegemony, so without Thebes running the League itself, Plates, Thespies and Orchomenos had to be rebuilt, mentioned them a few episodes ago. Thebes was trying to get out of this for a while. There are cities that were destroyed in the past about 40 years ago, but karma never forgets. 
the exiles of the above-mentioned towns could return to their cities. In the actual city of Thebes, and more specifically the Acropolis of Thebes, Kadmia, a Macedonian garrison would be installed. He called for all political exiles to return to Thebes, and then with them set up a fellow Macedonian oligarchy of 300 men. Whoever did not agree was turned into a ghost or simply returned to exile. So we see Philip take out his anger towards the Thebans. Probably has something to do with him being held hostage during his childhood. We're in 338, at the end of the Sacred War, Fokida was ordered to pay an annual fine of 60 talents. Philip made it 10, and for this year he said they didn't have to pay it. He couldn't completely leave them off the hook. He would be put against the Amphictyonic Council. He also officially allowed them to rebuild their cities that were destroyed in the Third Sacred War. Amphisa, who started the Fourth Sacred War, now had an alliance with Athens and had an alliance with Athens against Philip were forced to break up the population into smaller settlements. In Amvrakia, he, he installed the Macedonian guard. In Akarnania, which our sources say fought bravely against Philip, he exiled anyone who didn't like him or and he put in charge people he trusts. In Athens and Corinth, the people are freaking out. Most people they were saying that Philip is going to march into the city and destroy everything. So they were getting ready for a siege. Iperidis was one of the voices telling people they have to leave the outskirts of town and everyone meet in the city centre. Women and children should be sent to Piraeus, Piraeus, however you'd call it, along with any secret items they had. Piraeus had taller walls offering better defence. No one should be allowed to leave the city Anyone who tried and was caught would be considered a traitor and the punishment was death. They should also strengthen the walls. Also, all men under the age of 60 have to enlist in the army. Before Heronia, they wanted all men under 50, so now they've increased it, showing that they're kind of on the desperate side. But it gets worse. Anyone who has lost their political rights, so anyone who was found guilty at court and was publicly dishonored, is now forgiven. He also recommends all slaves had to be given their freedom, plus any of them that live in the city's borders should also be considered citizens of Athens. Athens at this time had 250,000 residents, roughly, and 30,000 of them were citizens. Citizens meaning they had the right to vote, they could be called up in case they went to war and all the other you know, lovely things are meant to be an Athenian in the 4th century. Now, with all these changes, Athens will be able to claim 150,000 citizens. You know, time was passing though, and Philip wasn't showing up. No invasion, no siege, you know, it's all going good. But he does send the Athenian Vimavis, the guy who the other tells us, but he say he said, but he probably didn't say, uh, he told Philip, stop being Thersitis, Philip. He sends that guy, apparently, to tell them they have no reason to be afraid. Then he's going to send Alexander himself. The first and final time he ever visits Athens, 
His actual title was formal ambassador of the Macedonians. He was also uh, with Antipater and Alcimachos. Philip didn't want to go. He was full of scars. He was missing an eye. A Sarissa had been stabbed in his leg, so he wasn't really walking that good. You know, like a caricature of a Macedonian war-hungry king. He doesn't want to scare the Athenians into submission. He wants to charm them. So he sends his young and sexy son, Alexander. Alexander had with him the ashes of the fallen Athenian soldiers and 2,000 of the prisoners from the Battle of Heronia. As we said, no ransom needed, no special treatment or agreement. You know, it was just heaven. This has never happened before. The victor visits the losing side and shows this amount of clemency. He also has a message for them. Send ambassadors to the king, ask for peace, and all is good. No one knows why Philip chose to be so kind to the Athenians. You know, uh, quite the opposite as far as how he treated the Thebans. We saw this again when talking about the peace of Philocrates. Perhaps he wants to persuade them to give him their navy battle for the Persians. You know, it would absolutely come in handy. He also needs a friendly stance towards the Athenians to give his Persian invasion a valid reason for existing. What was being highly propagandized was him punishing the Persians for invading Athens in 480. You can't discipline them one day and then fight for them the next, you know, just doesn't make sense. Not that the Athenians were a complete pushover. I'm not saying we should look down on them or anything like that. You know, they are the cultural center of the world. With its power, with their power, I guess you could say, they could, they could persuade any city within Greece they wanted, as much as their influence would allow. Demosthenes was not sent to Philip, which shouldn't surprise you. That would be like sending Hitler to solve the refugee problem. Demosthenes thought it would be best he took it easy for a while, so he left town until things cooled down. We know he took a job supervising the supplies various beautiful little islands in the Aegean were receiving. A wise choice, if you don't mind me saying. Athens sent Phokionas and Eschines to Macedonia, who returned with great news. Philip wasn't planning to install a garrison within Athens. The style, their system or style of government would still be a democratic regime. They would be free and autonomous. With Thebes, I remind you, he had told them to bring all the anti-Macedonians and he would let them know, you know, what he would do with them. But yeah, he lets the Athenians figure out their own way out without wanting to send anyone into exile. Within the Amphictyonic Council, again, there wouldn't be any change when it came to the role played by Athens, so their vote would still count the same as before. Athens had lost a city called Oropos in 366 to the Thebans. Now Philip decides to return it. He promised them not a single Macedonian ship would enter their port at Piraeus. He also still allowed them to have the most powerful navy fleet in the Aegean. Finally, he asked them to help out when it came to piracy. But, there is always a but, the second Athenian alliance had to be dismantled. They couldn't collect subscriptions from various cities of the alliance. Those who were given land 
in the north, in Chersonesos, as we mentioned previously, had to give up their property and return to Athens. This type of land was called klirurhies, meaning they were given randomly by picking a number out of a hat sort of deal. Now, Google, again, translates it as clergy, which is not what I mean. So, fuck it, we're learning a bit of Greek today. Klirurhies, klirurhies, it sounds fucking strange. It's a strange language, very old. Um, For Keon's official recommendation to this was to accept Philip's terms, as was done at the time. Alexander and Philip became honorary citizens of Athens. A statue of Philip riding his horse was put up to celebrate the occasion. Antipatros and Alkimachos were given the role of ambassadors of Macedonia in Athens. Now, we shouldn't look at what Athens were doing and think, well, they must have liked them, right? They were giving them all this attention and um, presence and all that lovely things. And um, but at a later time, as was tradition in Athens, a public speech was given, basically an obituary for the lads that died in battle. Thucydides, or Thucydides, as he would have liked to be called, has said that he that was chosen must be wise and respected by the public. The Athenian that was chosen was Demosthenes. <laughs> now, this speaks volumes of how the Athenians felt, knowing how Demosthenes felt about them, right? He hated them. Especially also when you take into consideration that Eschines was also one of those candidates. Eschines, as I've said previously, loved the Macedonians, though it didn't start that way. You know, he was against them to begin with, and then later on he learned to love them. Philip, while all this was happening, or around that time or after, you know, we're not quite sure, um, we know it was around the end of September or beginning of October in 338, travelled to Peloponnesos. He wants to chat with them. He didn't get the help he was hoping. And uh, the Corinthians and Megarians capitulated quickly. In Corinth, a Macedonian guard was installed, along with a fellow Macedonian government. In Megara, the same thing probably happened, but we have no record about what actually went down. He took a town from Corinth, Aegiruses, and gave it to Megara, wanting to limit Corinth's power and influence, as, as he had done against Thebes. Then he went to Argos, who supposedly had an alliance with Macedonia, but when the battle took place, they kept it neutral. You know, hey guys, remember me? You know, what the fuck? And that leaves us Sparti, or Sparta, uh, the alphas of the Peloponnese, right? They run this place, or so they thought at least. There's a theory that uh, this was the reason why so many states of the Peloponnese were so eager to form an alliance with Philip. They were all looking for their chance to end Sparti. Plutarch has a nice story. He has a few nice stories, actually. Philip had asked Sparta how they would have preferred for him to arrive, as a friend or a foe. Neutral, they said, or uveteron, as Plutarch wrote. That really pissed him off. (laughs) He punished them severely for it. He burnt a vast amount of their land, but not the city of Sparti. He has plenty of reasons for doing so, one of them being that he isn't the mean son of a bitch everyone wants him to be, but also more importantly, he wants the idea of Sparti to live on. This way, the other cities of Peloponnesus will still want to have an alliance with him. 
In the end, Arcadia, Argos, Megalopolis, Tegea, Messinia were all thrilled with what the king had to say to them. They, form, they formed an alliance with Macedonia. They didn't create in any problems at this moment at least. And it must have been a complete accident that all these cities surrounded Sparta. So even if they did try anything, they, you know, they wouldn't be able to accomplish much. This question comes up often. You know, why did Philip um, skip <laughs> battling or destroying Sparta? But after everything that happened, he really didn't have to. A Greek historian have, that I've been using for the podcast, Tarados Kargakos, you know, he's a great historian, don't get me wrong. If you find a translation of his in English, which I'm assuming you read English, give it a read. It's, you know, it's absolutely worth it. But he gets it wrong when it comes to explaining why Philip decided not to engage with battle against the Spartans. He says that Philip wouldn't dare attack the Spartans, even though Sparty has a, is a wall, is a city without walls. You know, he do, I think that he doesn't want to say anything mean about the Spartans. He had written a book about them and, you know, it probably would have been bad for sales, you know. But uh, he also, he's, you know, old school Greek. He wants to maintain the, the you know, how the Spartans were known, you know, as fearless, badass warriors. But the truth is those days are gone. The Macedonians are here now and they are looking to replace them in that department. Plutarch has a, another nice story. When Philip, after the Battle of Hieronia, wrote a very stiff letter to the king of Sparta, Archidamus, Archidamus replied, If you measure your shadow, you will not find it any bigger than what it was before your victory. And again from Plutarch, man wrote a lot, in his books on ethics, specifically about blabbering, he tells us that when Philip threatened them, if I get over there, I'm going to fuck you up so hard, you'll never be able to rebuild your kingdom kind of thing. The Spartans replied with a single word, if. Yeah, cute story, right? <laughs> but in reality, Philip could destroy them whenever he felt like it, but he decided to skip it for the reasons we mentioned. Isocrates, after the Battle of Hieronia, sends a third letter to Philip. In this letter, he calls Philip hegemon of the Greeks. He also says he should get going and invade the Persians. If he was able to bring freedom for the Greek cities in Asia Minor, there would be nothing left for him but to be called God. And we are now in the winter of 338. Philip has set up headquarters for, for his generals in Corinth, so he asks all Greek cities to send their ambassadors there. The Spartans are the only ones that refuse to send their people. Their excuse was, whatever is imposed by a conqueror is not peace but slavery. Athens had a weak moment and uh, <laughs> decided uh, and thought for a second uh, to be kind of, you know, mean and and uh, you know be dicks for a while for Keon recommended they should only go to Corinth if first they knew exactly what Philip was going to ask for them but thankfully the people rejected this Philip was kind to all ambassadors both in public and in private moments much like we had seen him talk to the Athenians when they visited Macedonia way back when uh, the Mosaeans apparently choked he announced that he was planning to implement a common peace. 
so no city would attack the other members that also agreed for common peace, or Philip, or any of his ancestors. First, he dictated the terms this peace would have for Greece in its totality as a nation, but he also wanted to talk to each city so he could know which issues each of them might have. As Plato wrote, all Greek city-states are by nature at war with each other's, <laughs> with each city-state, even though this may be undeclared. So Philip's main goal is to put an end to civil conflict. So its members could not intervene with the policies that other members are implementing. So Thebes, for example, couldn't, couldn't send soldiers to help the Athenians just because they're having trouble with a couple of assholes, but also any actions that may lead to civil conflict with each city-state was prohibited. For example, if you wanted to execute someone or illegally exile them or cancel any debt they had, this was a big no-no. It looks like Philip wants each government to run smoothly. Of course, no one was allowed to form an alliance with a foreigner that may want to harm other members of the treaty. Each state had a right to sail to any port they wanted to without being forced to travel somewhere which was never their destination. They agreed that a council would have to exist and make sure each member is acting appropriately. The head of this council would be named Hegemon or in Greek Iemonas. Each state would send a specific number of members, members that were chosen by them. The number of members, therefore votes, would be analogous to their military and naval power. The council would decide together what they were going to focus on. So if there were two different subjects that were of significance, say Athens had a problem but Thebes also had a problem, they would vote on what they thought was more important and try to solve that. Macedonia is not going to be part of the alliance. No, this wasn't because they didn't think of themselves as Greeks, as some idiots may say. It's the same thing Athens had done during the Second Athenian Alliance. It's a way of controlling things on the inside without that affecting you. The total military power will be close to 200 soldiers. No, 200,000 soldiers. Yeah, 200 soldiers. Less than Thermopylae. 200,000 soldiers and 15,000 cavalrymen. There is a slight risk all these fuckers might gang up against Macedonia, as the Mosenis tried to do in 330 with his speech on Alexander's t demands. This isn't the first time the Greeks tried to create something like this common peace, something like what was trying to be implemented here. We had the Adalkidio peace in 386 and Pelopidas's peace in 366. In one of those treaties, the guarantor was the Persian king, but this time Philip doesn't want to mingle with any Persians regarding his peace treaty. As we saw, Philip and his soldiers were in the city of Corinth when he asked for the fellow Greeks to send ambassadors. Corinth is not just a random city. It's the same city in 348, 31 Greek states cooperated against the Persians. After their chat, they all went home to think about what was said. In the spring of 337 in Corinth, a second meeting of all Greek city-states apart from Sparta took place. It's here that Philip was officially declared Iemon of the League, 
But if shit turned sour and war was to happen, he would be named Stratigos Autokratoras, which translates to a general emperor. First, they talked about the need to have a permanent body of presidents that would come into contact with the hegemon. Then he presented them with his grand plan. To begin with, they will have to bring independence to the Greek cities of Asia Minor, which means going against the Persians, therefore stopping their payment of servitude tax. And of course, the need for a pan-Hellenic campaign against the Persians. Pan-Hellenic meaning all Greek cities in their totality. Their goal was to avenge them for the sacrilegious acts against their temples after the looting and the looting of Athens during the Persian Wars. So, what if uh, what if that was 150 years ago? You know, as Worthington says nicely, there's no statute of limitations on crimes against the gods. At least that's what I think he says. I've got his book in Greek, and it's translated by me to English, so if it's wrong, please forgive me. The Greeks have constantly asked for this campaign to take place, or simply for Greece to unite. You know, there was Isocrates, Lysias in 388, Gorgias, the Leondian, might ring a bell if you've read Plato, it's, yes, that Gorgias, Gorgias, I don't know, you say it somewhere, some, some, anyway, different. Uh, Gorgias would also would talk often about such things, you know, during his public appearances. So it must have seemed like a, a logical thing for Philip to recommend this. Perhaps they would have preferred a, a southern Greek to implement this, you know, but tough. It's Philip who's putting this into action. And it was done in the best possible way. History has shown that people will work together if there's a common enemy. You know, I can't imagine, you know, Philip actually caring about the Greek cities in Asia Minor. You know, keep in mind, and also keep in mind that even the most profitable companies sometimes go bust. And Philip has the most profitable state in Greece. But the constant campaigns, the constant sieges, the constant wars they've been waging on, you know, uh, has Macedonia's funds go bye-bye. He didn't want the Greek allies to know this. He even goes as far to talk directly to the Athenians and say, you know, look what I have planned for you. He was trying to make obvious that he's only fighting for the glory and reputation of Greece. Proof of this, that Philip was basically skint, was Alexander's first few years as king. The lad had to borrow money to even begin the campaign. You know, we'll talk about it when we get there, obviously. The difference with this common piece and the treaties that came before is our main man, Philip. The treaty was also imposed after battle, meaning through military power. He had shown them that he was ready to go against Athenians, Thebans, mercenaries, basically anything you put in front of him. If someone dared go against another state, they would have to go against Philip soldiers, along with a number of Greek states, who are already who are all ready to go for their hegemon. This was one of the most important moments of Greek history. But to be honest, some of what Philip was promising couldn't happen. He said he wouldn't install Macedonian garrisons, and we've already seen some states that uh, have lost their autonomy, and where he actually installed Macedonian garrisons. We've also, you know, mentioned Amvrakia, Corinth, Thebes, you know, Chalkida. 
And uh, but you have to expect it when talking about Philip. He loved promising things and then never delivering. You know that was kind of his style. You know, God bless him. There's a suckle born every minute, right? And there's also the oath that was given by various Greek cities. We have it, and I'm going to read it now. I swear by Zeus, Yea, Helios, Poseidon, and all the gods and goddesses, I will abide by the common peace, and I will neither break the agreement with Philip, nor take up arms on land or sea, harming any of those abiding by the oaths. Nor shall I take any city or fortress, nor harbour by craft or contrivance, with intent of war against the participants of the war. Nor shall I depose the kingship of Philip or his descendants, nor the constitutions existing in each state, when they swore the oaths of the peace. Nor shall I do anything contrary to these agreements. Nor shall I allow anyone else as far as possible. But if anyone does commit any breach of the treaty, I shall go in support as called by those who need, and I shall fight the transgressors of the common peace, as decided by the council and called on by the hegemon, and I shall not abandon... And then it stops. And that's the end of the episode. Hope you like it, guys.